Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking the, such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you and he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here their saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. 
Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of God. Psalm 42 uh, begins, As the deer pants for streams of flowing water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. And there's an analogy set up there right away, or a metaphor. Imagine a deer in the woods. Um, One of the things that a deer does not have is the convenience store. So as the deer senses thirst, what are they, uh, what are, what would they be inclined towards a stream of living water that would satisfy them? That analogy is what the writer of this psalm says, that there's a thirst in my soul for God. And so he says, my soul thirsts for you, O God. I wonder how many of you would say that either now or in seasons of your life. Some of you may be coming very satisfied, spiritually strong, in a good place in life. That's good. Uh, but, but a thirst where there's a sense in which there's a drying out, there's a longing for something. Now, a year ago, we as a church were talking a lot about spiritual dryness. Spiritual dryness and spiritual thirst are related but we experience them a little bit differently. Spiritual dryness could feel more like apathy, where spiritual thirst feels like longing. And in some cases with that analogy, if we're thirsty and the thirst is not properly quenched, we may dry out. It's a hard situation. Some of you are there now. Uh, We've assumed as a church that in the last couple of years, because of uh, just increased disconnect, increased pressures, things not working, that Maybe people are suffering spiritual dryness more so than other other times. We're looking at a passage today where in John's gospel, there are these huge themes that are coming, um, and, and they're hard to communicate. So Jesus talks with these analogies that often don't necessarily connect with the person that he's talking with. So uh, after he drives people out of the temple, he says, destroy this temple and I will build it in three days. And John, the, the writer, the gospel writer, says he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body. And then he's talking with Nicodemus, uh, who comes to him at night, and Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom unless you have this new birth. And Nicodemus' response is, well, am I supposed to crawl back in my mother's womb? What are you even talking about? The birthing metaphor is kind of an obvious one, but but he misses it. So here is another passage in John where where Jesus is talking with somebody. Now he's talking about water, also a, a pretty clear illustration, but... Uh, But the Samaritan woman he's talking to doesn't really understand as she starts to say, you don't even have a bucket, you don't have a rope, Uh, you're asking me to give you water, what are we even talking about? And yet Jesus is constantly showing us things that that go beyond what our minds can grasp because he wants to give us more than we can get on our own, more than we can figure out, more than we could earn or achieve. John says he's written this book so that we would have life. And here's another installment of Jesus talking about giving life to someone and the, the, uh, the context of this, being by a well, thirsty people, talking about water, does become the context where we um, can gain insight into what Jesus is trying to do, what God is inviting us to, how 
our lives can, um, how we can take part of that eternal life. So what we see in this passage is that Jesus alone graciously gives us what satisfies our thirsty souls. So I want to talk about two things today. One is our drinking problem, and secondly, uh, deep thirst quenched. So I want to begin with this problem, this drinking problem, which is uh, that we are a thirsty people. <laughs> um, that idea of thirsting for God, some people feel it, they, they don't have enough of God, they don't understand God, or they're going through a hard period. Some don't, but we feel that we're thirsty. So it's interesting, if you were to go around New York and stop people and ask people, do you thirst for God? You get a variety of, of responses. Some might laugh at you, think that's a, a crazy question. Some might feel it's irrelevant. You might be surprised at how many people would answer, yes, I do. But if you remove the phrase, for God, and ask the question, does your soul thirst? I think any New Yorker in tune with what's really going on would have to say, yes. That's one of the reasons people come to New York. I'm, I'm longing for something, something better, something satisfying, and nothing's done it, so I'm going to make more sacrifices and go bigger. We are a thirsty people. Our souls thirst. We don't necessarily think of them as thirst for God, but what we wind up doing, the context here of water winds up being a conversation on worship, is we devote ourselves to what we think we're thirsting for or what we think will satisfy our thirsts. And therefore people say, I do not thirst for God, perhaps, uh, but what are you thirsting for? Is it fame and fortune? Is it comfort? Is it control of your life? Is it trying to fix something? There's, there are these longings that we have that, that we can so devote ourselves to that we don't realize we become a very religious people just because we're not talking about God or doing uh, traditionally religious practices, but we devote our time and energy to disciplines and sacrifices and longings with hope. Um, Jesus comes and says, actually, uh, the longings below the longings are connected to God, your creator, who alone gives life. And so there is something you're longing for that can be satisfied temporarily in the things of this world, but a real satisfaction uh, must come from something deeper. Jesus comes and says, that's what I'm talking about. So, so he's talking about something very serious here. So, so the analogy with thirst, physical thirst, and uh, what's going on in our souls is clear enough that this becomes one of the major metaphors that people talk about. And so if you think simply uh, about how does dehydration happen for people, um, that reflection could help you understand, well, where do we go wrong spiritually? How do I wind up spiritually dry? So one way that we wind up dehydrated physically is by failing to take in fluid. So you have one of those afternoons that you're just so busy and you're running around or you wind up in a place, you know, where you're traveling and there's no water fountain or no store. Um, you don't take in fluid and therefore you wind up thirsty. If you go a long period without taking in fluid, then you dry out and it could become deadly. So the analogy, how do we get spiritually thirsty or how do we um, get spiritually dry? One, it's not the only one, but one is we're, we've busied ourselves with things and we're not we're not drinking, we're not reading the Bible, we're not praying, we've skipped church long enough. Not that those things work automatically, but if you're not doing the basic things that God gives us to do life with him, it wouldn't be surprising that the outcome is um, 
a sense that God is not fully with us or the sense that we've so dried out that we don't know where God is. And so uh, that's one possibility. But we also sometimes dehydrate because we seek to satisfy our thirsts with things that don't satisfy our thirsts. You know, last week I spoke to a, a number of non-runners that were, were saying, what, a, what, what wonderful weather for a marathon, it's like 75 degrees. And uh, anyone who has done something athletic outdoors knows 75 degrees is not your friend uh, after three hours of running. And so you don't want to be standing on the sidelines handing these, these people that are dying of, of thirst and dehydration soda. Soda is wet, so it will feel good to a thirsty mouth. Uh, but then a half hour later, as the sugar does what it does, um, it's not really helping you feel hydrated. Somebody who comes home from work and drinks half a bottle of scotch is taking in a lot of liquid. But at that point, they are not uh, strengthening their souls. They're, they're deadening the desires that, that are not being satisfied and trying to do away with them. And so sometimes, and you can see the analogy, what, what are we seeking after to satisfy our thirsty souls that God says, this is not going to satisfy you. And you keep going back and back, but it, it's, it's killing you. So we do that. Uh, and, and here's the last thing that one of the ways that we dry out spiritually is that more goes out from us than comes in. And so there are unusual circumstances. If you have an illness and there's vomiting and diarrhea, the normal things of just drinking won't work. And therefore, uh, you dry out, and, and so life in this world is hard. And sometimes we face particular seasons where we're, we're giving more of ourselves than we're taking in, or something big and traumatic just takes everything out of us so that that way it's, it, we feel like whatever we're taking in is leaking out of us. And so, so there's a sense in which sometimes we just have to expect in this world, we will, uh, we will, our souls will wither and dry up because of the nature of life in this world and the disordered things within us and around us. And so uh, there could be maybe more examples that we could talk about, but, but the fact that we spiritually dehydrate or spiritually thirst and, or sometimes get dry, there's enough there that, that indicates we need something consistent, something healthy. Uh, and that's what Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman about. Now, to, to help us understand what's going on, there's actually a long, complicated story between uh, the, the people represented here. And you can see it in the language of, of this woman saying, why are you a Jew, talking to a Samaritan? Um, that question is an interesting one, and it speaks of a complicated history. Not exactly the same, but if you went to the exact same area today and you wondered, why are you, a Jew from Israel, speaking to me, a Muslim Palestinian? you'd know that, that that interaction is complicated. And so it's not exactly the same, but, but it's actually surprisingly similar that, that there's a story here that, that our narrator clues us into. And I want to talk about two components of that. One is the story of, of Jacob and Joseph, and then, and then the story of the Samaritans themselves. And so in verses 5 and 6, the location of this particular dialogue has significance in terms of how John is pulling together the story of the Bible. Um, and so verses five and six, uh, we're told that this, this interaction happens near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. It's kind of odd that he mentions Joseph. Um, not entirely. Joseph uh, wound up his bones um, in the book of Joshua being taken out. Likely he was buried in this area. So it's not that it's, it's unrelated, but he's not related to Jacob's well. 
Um, but that story about Jacob and Joseph is part of the story John is telling. And so if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's actually one of the great stories of the Bible. It's the last part of the book of Genesis. Jacob's name is changed to Israel because he would become the father of a nation. And he has 12 sons, and each of those sons would be a tribe, would have a land allotment within that nation, one nation um, called Israel, descendants of Jacob. Joseph was the favored son, the favorite son of Jacob. The other brothers did not like that. They resented him, so much so that they wanted to kill him. And then in a surprising twist, they make the decision not to kill him, but to sell him into slavery where he winds up in Egypt. And you find that the story unfolds in a way that God is doing something. The punchline at the end is, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's a very human story of how we mistreat one another, no excuses for it. But somehow God is working in this long, painful story for something much bigger. And here are two aspects of that story that are not maybe major aspects, but, but relate uh, or inform the, the history behind this. One is, what was God's what was one of the purposes God had in sending Joseph? Well, it was to save his family from what? From a famine. Uh, and I don't know exactly what was going on, but in an agricultural society, we need food. Food doesn't come if you don't have water, if there's not rain. Joseph winds up suffering miserably, but rising to prominence, uh, and, and, and then, through God's revelation, prepares the Egyptian people, not so simply so that his own family would be saved, but that the whole region, because of their of Joseph planning, would not die in this famine. And so that's part of the Joseph story. Another interesting part of the Joseph story is Joseph is, is sold off out of his family, and he winds up marrying into Egyptian royalty and having two children, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so now the sons of Jacob are, are intermixed. <laughs> Um, they're, they're mixed with, you know, so now in the story, there's, there's Egyptian blood. You know, when you read through the Genesis story, there are these things that you wonder, why was this story told here? Why is the story of Jacob blessing Joseph's sons there? If you're familiar with that, Ephraim and Manasseh, come and I will bless you. You could read that story. He's reclaiming them in a sense. He's saying, these are, are my sons. There was, there was part of that ethnic national complication to say, on the one hand, these are the sons of Asenath, the Egyptian, but these are my beloved son Joseph's sons, and they will be very important. So you can follow the line of Ephraim through the Bible, very important. We find the importance of this story as you get to the days of the kings, where after Solomon dies, Israel splits into north and south. Um, in the northern tribes, you have a king there who's not in the line of Judah, shouldn't necessarily be king. He sets up his capital in Samaria, and then he politically creates two worship sites, because what happens is if you're trying to keep your people away from them, but you have to go to them for worship, uh, so why don't I have these worship sites that are not commanded by God, not honoring to God, and therefore he sets himself up politically but against God. So what winds up happening is the story of northern Israel is all these allegiances and alliances with other nations that involve their gods, their worship, and um, God raising up prophets. It's interesting, when you read the prophetic religion, uh, literature, you keep hearing about Joseph. And in, in, in a number of the prophets, the northern tribes are referred to as Joseph. It winds up being Joseph in the north and Judah in the south. It's very interesting how that Genesis story plays out in, in the pictures of the Bible. But the idea uh, is that the Assyrians then finally come and 
capture them and take them away. They wind up lost, like Joseph, uh, that you have a whole people removed from the land, taken away, um, never to return. So that's the, um, the Jacob-Joseph story. How does this connect with the Samaritan story? And so who is this woman? What's interesting is during the Assyrian exile, what empires often do is they leave some people in the land. Sometimes they appoint their own leader, so it could be you know, aristocracy that, that is controllable, but also it could be the poor people, it could be a variety of people that are left, um, but you don't want them to grow and become strong, and so you leave some people in the land, and then you bring other people from other lands, and you mix them. So that's what the Assyrians did, and so now in this region, you have Jews intermarrying with people and worshiping other gods, and then the story in the south is they wind up exiled by the Babylonians, but they come back with their identity intact. They've learned a lot of lessons, and their lesson was, we better get it right this time. That's the beginning of the trajectory towards Pharisaism. <laughs> we didn't keep the law the last time. Now we're going to keep it perfectly. So now you have uh, the, the people with a Jewish identity. You know, where does the word Jew come from? We don't always know etymologically, but the people in the south, the tribe that we could identify as Judah. These are the people who still have their Jewish identity. And then you have the other tribes around, and they've got some link, but you've got Samaritans. They're Jewish. Uh, they've got some, uh, some Judaism in them, and then they've got everything else. Um, that creates a relational hostility for people feeling you're compromised, and we're now trying to keep it together. Um, by the time you get to the first century, and if you read uh, ancient history, extra-biblical literature, lots of complications between Samaritans and those identifying themselves as Jews, as Israel. And so now we have a conversation between Jesus and this woman. And it's interesting that, that the conversation goes towards her and her husband's. So on an individual basis, there's a lot that we could really see in this interaction. And just for the sake of time, I'm going to zoom out a bit um, to talk about what we might not otherwise pick up on, which is they're having this conversation about um, water, and then it's going to become a conversation on worship. But the transitional question is, well, why don't you go tell your husband? And she says, I don't have one. And he says, well, you're right in saying that you don't have one because you've had many. This is verses 17 to 18. You've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Now, we don't really know what, what the, the situation is, but there's a sense in which, uh, on the one hand, we have, have a um, kind of a marginalized woman. It's why is she there in the middle of the day when nobody else is around? There's a lot about her story that's interesting. But her story embodies the Samaritan story in a certain way. And I don't mean this as an allegory, but I mean the Jewish perspective on the Samaritan people is that you've had uh, many people that you've been involved with. You have worshipped the Canaanite gods and the, um, you know, the gods of the Assyrians, and, and you've, you've linked yourself to a number of people who would provide for you. And now you're back, and what she's saying is, but we are, Jacob is our father, and we worship here on this mountain. And the Samaritans didn't believe that the whole Bible was God's word, but they believed that the five books of Moses were, so they followed that in some way. And, and it seemed like now they're, they're back to being a people focused on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. And yet, Jesus seems to be indicating through the interaction 
um, you know, as they're talking, as she's saying, we worship on this mountain and you worship on that mountain, Jesus says, look, the foundational thing is salvation is from the Jews. And so, so essentially, um, a, a major transformation is coming, but at, at the end of the day, we're right. And whatever kind of worship you're doing, you are not linked covenantally with God and his people. You're separated. And so, so I don't know that Jesus is fully getting at that, but that sentence, you've had many husbands, but the one that you have now, not really your husband, is he? So you're worshiping here, you're saying Jacob is your father, um, but you're not in fellowship with God and his people. But Jesus then uses that occasion to invite her. He's saying that the time has now come when there will be true worshipers. There, there's something Jesus is doing here that's now permanently crossing this hundreds of years old boundary that, it, that humanity has created. It's quite a complex story. Um, uh, but he, let me point out two things. One is Jesus is calling her to a more singular devotion and commitment. This is somebody who may have, um, uh, have been influenced by a variety of sources, and she's saying, I can give, Jesus is saying, I can give you a loan. What will give you life? I can satisfy you. And perhaps she, like many modern people, would say, why do you have to be so exclusive? Why is it you and not these other things? And so we always think that, that, that Jesus is limiting us when Jesus is trying to say, you've actually limited yourself on what is life-giving. I'm trying to focus you on what only God can give you that you're not seeing because you're not fully looking to God. And so that's something that again and again, we who don't want to be spiritually thirsty or even we're spiritually dead, need to recognize Jesus is saying, um, it's not an ego thing that, that I need to know I'm more important than others. It's a, nobody could give you what I'm giving you. And so don't try uh, to, to um, have a variety of ways to find life, but, but trust me for it, and that's when you'll find the spring of living water. And it's also a reminder in this story that, um, that we don't, we don't want to stay um, in, the, in, the, in the thought patterns of the ways that we're thought uh, or, or, uh, that the world trains us to think. So for example, if we now think of this Samaritan woman, so she's, she's with a people that even within this people, the, the assumption uh, for most readers is that she's a somewhat marginalized person. So, so the Jews would say the Samaritans are inherently immoral. And like any group, you always want to say, but there's somebody worse than us. And for them, it might have been this woman. You think we're not moral. Well, look at this woman. She keeps marrying and marrying and marrying. But here Jesus comes and he's showing, but at the end of the day, I'm inviting her to living water. Uh, the narrative that she might have is, I'm not even acceptable among my own people. Would I be acceptable among the Jews? And Jesus is saying, we're, we're talking about something entirely different. And so to the spiritually weary, to the thirsty, to those who feel spiritually dead, if the thought is, if I hadn't made these mistakes, if I had a stronger background in Christianity, if there was something, then maybe I would be worthy to come. We learn that pattern because that's what the world says. If you meet these standards, you're worthy for us to hire you. If you do these things, you're worthy to hang out with us. And so we assume God must be the same. And there's a paradigm shift here saying, I'm coming to give you what you most deeply long for. And there's a picture here after he spoke with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the exact opposite. So in chapter three, the Pharisee, he's educated, hardworking, learned, has high standing, and he says to him, you can't even see it. 
And now he goes to the Samaritan. And by our standards, we might say, I could see how, why the Samaritan woman wouldn't, but I could see why Nicodemus does. What Jesus is saying is none of you are understanding. God is going to give you something that you cannot get on your own. Um, but the beauty of it is um, it comes to even those who, who are unable <laughs> to get anything else on their own. It, 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 it's a message that includes the failure and the outcast and the one who thinks it's too late. And this story is so beautiful because it says, look, if you're successful, there's a humbling that's going to need to happen to come into the kingdom. But if you've been humiliated, there's also a rethinking that needs to happen as well. And that's where Jesus brings us all to this view to say, look, if you're thirsty, come and drink. And that's what he wants to offer us. And so uh, if you are starting to sense that this world won't satisfy you, you won't find a life in any enduring way here, um, Jesus is gracious. And so what I want to talk about next is this deep thirst being quenched. That's why Jesus has this conversation at this time about water. And it's interesting that Jesus himself is weary in this story. And so it's noon. So it's the middle of the day. The reason nobody else is at the well is because you go early in the morning while well, you have just enough light to see, but it's still cool. It says he's weary from his travel. So he's walking in a deserty kind of place. He's hungry. His disciples are urging him to eat because they're seeing he must not he must look weak, but Jesus' focus is, well, I may be weakened, but I'm here doing something very significant. And so in that weakness, I am going to give life to, to those who are weak. And so in verse 10, in interacting with the Samaritan woman, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God. So that's what's in view. He's going to give something. This is what you see all through John's gospel. He offers it to her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And it's interesting to wonder what she thought the gift was. In, in the first century, a lot of the, the rabbis talked about Torah, the five books of Moses, being God's gift. What other nation, Moses says in Deuteronomy, has the righteous revelation and the laws that we have? The interesting thing is the Samaritans had that. They didn't believe in the writings of the prophets or the period of the kings, but they believed in Torah. Uh, something, whether or not Jesus is getting at it here, but, but Jesus keeps interacting in John. If you knew what the scripture said, you would recognize me in the voice of God. If you knew the gift of God, would she have heard that as Torah? I don't know. But we know that we've already looked at John 3. God so loves the world, he gave his only son. The gift is Jesus. But Jesus here talking about water you get this again in John 7. You get this other places. He's talking about the spirit. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give myself God's gift for your life because God wants to give you the spirit that will give you life, but he can't just give it to you. Something needs to happen first. And so Jesus is talking about living water that they can receive, given freely as a gift, but Jesus will be the one who is able to give it. So in verses 13 and 14, he says, everyone who drinks of this water because that's what she seems to think living water is like. Are you talking about a spring that runs underneath this well? What is this? Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
So remember at the end of John's gospel, he says, I've written these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and in believing you would have eternal life. Jesus now offers eternal life to a Samaritan. And he's saying, if you knew who I was, and if you asked me, I would give to you something that would become a spring. It will go into your dead, dry soul, and it will start to moisten things. So then uh, eternal life starts to well up. And, and while this conversation is happening, as she goes to tell others, the disciples come, and they're confused. You're talking to a woman. You're having a conversation with the Samaritan. But their main concern, they're looking at weary Jesus, and they're urging him to eat. And in that, he uses another analogy from his time period about a harvest that he says, look, many people labor for a long period of time, but you really want to be there when the harvest comes. And, and there are people who have come and did work before you, but, but this moment is a climactic moment. And so, yes, I need to eat, but I've got a, a more crucial work to be doing at the moment. This is, uh, this is a, a major climactic moment in the Bible and in, in God's history. Think about in the book of Acts, a different writer, but Luke says, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. So then when it does, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then where does the Holy Spirit fall in the book of Acts? Jerusalem, the Samaritans, and then the Gentiles. John's telling the same story. And so he says to them in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. This is a crucial time. I'm not gonna eat at this moment, not because bodies are unimportant, but there's something more going on. My food is to do the will of the Father that we're not doing and to accomplish his work. So then you get to John 19 where Jesus is crucified and John chooses to record a, a, a number of things that Jesus says. One of them, one of the seven known last words of Jesus that John records is, I thirst. There's Jesus hanging on the cross, uh, withering away. He thirsts, and when he says that, they give him this sour wine to drink. And, and in the verse that John describes the death of Jesus, after, right after he says, I thirst, in John 19.30, it says, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to give you spirit, you who are thirsty, but the work of God is to accomplish the purpose for which I came. And I came to give my life so that you would have life. So you who are thirsty and weary, come to me because I will become weary and thirsty. I will finish the work and I will give up my spirit because my goal is to pour out the Holy Spirit to renew you, to give you life. And what Jesus is saying is you, you, you can't earn this, you can't achieve it. There's nothing you can do to convince God. And the beauty is you don't have to convince God. God wants to give it to you. And so they wind up talking about worship. And in this Joseph story, the Samaritans wind up not fulfilling the Joseph story. Who is the, the brother who is hated? Uh, because the father so loved the son that they rejected the son. But his rejection, what they meant for evil, this is, you see this in the preaching of Acts, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus is the one that we thought was lost and dead and is found, and he went to make it so that he would not only save his own brothers, 
but he would become the savior of the world. That's what this passage is communicating. And so in verses 23 to 25, Jesus now speaking to the Samaritan woman again says, the hour is coming. And we know in John this ominous hour that he's gonna be crucified, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So she's saying, we've got our mountain, you've got your mountain. We worship our way, you worship your way. And what he's saying is the Father is going out and seeking people to worship him. And he's not saying the whole world needs to come to this mountain. He's saying the time has been fulfilled. Yes, salvation is of the Jews. Jesus was born of the line of Judah. But now the message is going out from that mountain to the ends of the earth to invite people to worship. It's not that people are seeking after God and they need some help. People are spiritually dying. And the Father is seeking those who will worship him. And so at the end of the story, uh, the whole Samaritan village comes. And in verse 42, they say to the Samaritan woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, because she said, here's a prophet who told me everything that I ever did. And she says, are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? Jesus could be a bit ambiguous in John. Jesus says, I am, I am he, I am the Christ. He tells her that. And they say to her, it is no longer because of what he said to you that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. That's what the story communicates. The story communicates there's this very particular story of a particular people, but Jesus comes to bring a fulfillment to it so that uh, the whole Bible would be fulfilled. Read Genesis 2, read Revelation 21, lots of water. <laughs> read Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, lots of thirsting. And what is happening here is Jesus is coming to, to make things new. He's, he's coming to renew things. He's looking to uh, give life to people and to uh, reignite that orig original mission, to gather people who worship God and then go out into the world in order to live life as worshipers of God. So here's, here's some things I want to point out. One is everyone is invited. That's the message. This is the savior of the world. Um, you may have no Christian background, or you may have walked away from the faith, or you may be here today saying, I'm committed, I just want more. Jesus is saying, anyone who comes to me with thirst, I will give you living water, and it will grow to eternal life. So, so, so trust him for that. Um, the invitation is specific. He's saying, look, uh, if you're going to come to me, uh, focus on me. Don't, don't, don't add me to your spiritual plan, but, but know that the thing that I'm promising, I alone give. And trust me, that if you focus on me, you will find that then when you resume life as you know it, there's a fullness. Um, but he focuses on himself, it's, it's specific. So he says we worship in spirit and truth. Here's just one application of that. Why as a Manhattan church do we need to gather every Sunday to talk about the truth as Jesus gives it to us? Um, it's because we believe these false things, like actually if you make partner, you'll be satisfied. <laughs> if your investments could go up while everyone's going down, you'll be satisfied. If you can meet the right person, if you could come to this amazing event, there are all these promises that, that aren't fully true. And we come back together, and, and one thing in the church sometimes is to warn people against things that are harmful. Don't do those things. Everyone says they're wonderful. 
But the more tricky thing is things that are actually good. Yes, you should give yourself to your career. Yes, you should enjoy all that the city has, but not if it's done as an act of devotion and worship, not if you think it will satisfy your soul. So we come together to worship in truth to say at the end of the day, our souls will be satisfied by the grace of God, by what he provides, by the spirit he gives us. And then I can enjoy my job. I can enjoy the things that I do, but I won't devote myself to them. And where this is important is because one of the clearest ways to a spiritual wreckage is to devote yourself to something that cannot give you life. And then when you find out that it can't, the confusion that usually comes. Jesus' invitation is, is if you're confused, if you devote yourself to the wrong things, just come and receive water. And now go back into the world, not as, as a thirsty people, but as a satisfied people who then can live rightly in the world. Uh, and there's the spirit. We also gather because this is a work that God does. And so we, we, we are seeking a filling of the spirit every Sunday. Lord, we're coming again to you. Uh, satisfy our souls. That's what we're seeking after. Uh, just another point here. We all come by grace. It is a gift. God gives it to us. That actually is so important because when you realize the generosity of God, that's when eternal life really um, wells up in us. When you realize I don't contribute anything, I don't earn anything, I just keep coming back for more, you'll find that that creates a foundation to keep going. And then here's the last thing I'll say, which is that all of life is worship. So, so I'm highlighting coming to church. That's not always where God meets people. Um, but, but one of those patterns of saying, we wanna be a community that keeps eating and drinking of what God would feed us. We come together to do what God says, seek me in prayer, seek me in the word, have fellowship with one another. One of the ways that our church prays, which lots of other churches do, so you, you've likely heard, if, you're, if you've been part of a church, of the ACTS model of praying, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. What does it mean to be people who worship God in spirit and truth? Well. What's beautiful about Christianity is unlike some of the ways you're motivated, which is this is so wonderful, give everything for it, and we're hiding the cost and the sacrifice, or you're so terrible that, you know, kind of the military thing, we're gonna humiliate you until you get it together to come. And uh, the world's models never really are, are ultimately life-giving. ACTS says on the one hand, the truth is uh, we're imperfect people in a broken world. And so we need to come confessing. <laughs> But here's the thing, the beauty about Christianity. Jesus says, I know more than you do your own failings, but I'm still inviting you to come. But just come and be truthful. Let me know who you are. I will speak the truth, and, and that's restorative. Supplication. There are things that you want that you don't need. I'm not yet giving them to you, but there are things that you want that you can't grasp for yourselves. You want more for life and for this world. So supplication. Ask for them. Trust that I'm good. So on the one hand, there's a model of praying in Christianity that says we come as weak, discouraged, somewhat helpless people, but there is adoration and there is thanksgiving, which means that when we gather, we also recognize there's something beautiful about God. Are you seeking truth? Are you seeking beauty? Are you seeking those kinds of things? What we're told is that if you want your soul to be satisfied, there's a spiritual work where God will open your eyes so that when you get to know him, you're long, you realize what is going to satisfy your longing, and there's thanksgiving. Then you start to recognize once your life is connected to him, God is the one who will sustain and provide you. So the gathering, scattering pat pattern of the church, we gather to seek God together, and then we go back into the world as a people that we came for water. <laughs> we came that the Spirit would, would quench our souls, would renew us, and then we go back into the world for the exciting things and for the hard things and for the wearying things, and then we come back. And it's that cycle that allows us to live 
this fullness of life. A good doctor knows that you need to stay hydrated. There's times that the doctor knows you can't drink, so you get intravenous. God knows that spiritually we're complicated people. And when we, when we stay with him and trust him, he will find the ways to satisfy our souls. And so keep coming to Jesus who says, I can give you living water. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as we gather today, um, some of us really are thirsting. Some of us may be so dry and weary that, um, that we feel apathy and some of us uh, are dissatisfied with that. Our, our consciences know that we should choose more. And Lord, wherever we're at, we need that renewing work of the Spirit that only you can do. And you do it because you're kind and generous. And so, Lord, here we are. We appeal for it. Uh, work in our souls. Renew our hearts and minds. Uh, strengthen the discouraged. Cleanse us from our sin. Help us to take the things that excite us and to, to pursue them eagerly uh, as worshipers of you and not as those who worship in a confused and false way. So, Lord, bear patiently with us, but, Lord, uh, we know that this eternal life Jesus offers is far greater than we currently understand, and so open our minds to receive it and to see it. We pray in his name. Amen.